This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Typhoon. We here at the Word of the Week may have mentioned this before, but we had a lot of odd fears as a kid. As kids? One of us had a lot of odd fears as a kid. For example, we mentioned in Apocalypse that we were terrified each and every New Year's Eve that we were enjoying our last night on Earth. And someday, we will talk about the recurring extinction-level asteroid nightmares that plagued us. But we were recently reminded of a period of two summers in junior high school where we spent all of our free time watching the Tropical Report on the Weather Channel for fear that a hurricane was going to come barreling up the East Coast and wipe the pile of dirt that we called home right out of the Atlantic Ocean. Go back to our episode on moraines for a discussion of that particular pile of dirt. What reminded us of our childhood terror of hurricanes? Well, it started with our episode on the solstice, in which we noted some interesting overlaps between Greek and Japanese mythology concerning why winter was a thing. But it really came to the fore when we continued noting those overlaps in our episode about the Hydra. And so now, in a sort of unofficial third and final installment of a barely connected series of episodes that might be entitled, Isn't It Weird How Sometimes Japanese and Classical Mythology touch on the same things in weirdly similar ways, though admittedly not that similarly when you look at the details, we're going to talk about a word that reminded us of our childhood terrors. A word that is often accused of having origins in classical mythology. For good reason. But doesn't actually. Because its origins are Japanese. Well, Japanese but absorbed from Chinese. And we'll touch on another word that is more purely Japanese, not just because it's a Japanese word, but because it's steeped in Japanese culture. A word that cost the Japanese the lives of 3,000 pilots, cost the Americans the lives of 5,000 sailors, sank 50 naval ships, and damaged 200 more between October 21st of 1944 and August 15th of 1955. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's start with the Hydra and our childhood fears. While we were writing about the Lernian Hydra that Heracles beheaded several hundred times before it took, we noted that the creature had a particular parentage that was not terribly uncommon in Greek mythology. Just like his slayer Heracles was just one of dozens of demigods fathered by Zeus during one of his many dalliances with mortal women, the Hydra was one of dozens, hundreds really, one of hundreds of children of a particular father. But unlike Heracles, the Hydra and its hundreds of siblings were actually born of a committed, monogamous relationship. And it's actually an interesting statement on Greek mythology that most of their heroes were bastards, while their monsters were all born from good family values. And given current research on the importance of the family unit as the basis for social and psychological development, maybe that's why their civilization collapsed. But we don't want to get into that particular mess of an issue. So let's just share the story of the Hydra's loving and committed parents. The giant serpent woman Echidna and the snake monster Typhon. The story of Typhon and Echidna and all their children actually starts with Zeus being a crappy husband and Hera being a very vengeful and spiteful wife. Again. Seriously, half of Greek mythology starts with Zeus and Hera being a really terrible couple all around. So Hera is mad at Zeus. The reason isn't important. Zeus probably deserved it. But Hera's response was probably quite disproportionate. 
because Zeus always deserved it, and Hera always took her revenge too far. Anyway, Hera goes and visits Gaia, who is the world, the earth, but who is also a goddess. And then she goes and visits Tartarus, which is a storm-filled bottomless abyss, but who is also a god. Somehow. And she convinces the two of them to procreate. However, a planet in a storm-filled bottomless pit might do so. Specifically, she wants them to give birth to a new god more powerful than Zeus. And what she gets is a monster that isn't just a snake monster and isn't just made of snakes. He's made of recursive snakes. He's a fractal snake monster. Typhon, the kid, has the torso of a man. But literally everything about him is snakes. His legs are snakes, and his arms are snakes, and his hands don't have fingers, they have snakes. Hundreds of snakes. And his head is a snake. And it also has a hundred snakes growing off it. And his main snake head can breathe fire. And all his other snake heads are constantly writhing around and constantly screaming with the sounds of every terrible animal that ever existed. Oh, and he also has hundreds of wings. Because why not? And he's so tall that he bumps all his snake heads on the sky itself. The other gods are not exactly welcoming of the snake monster whose body is covered with hundreds of other snake monsters and also wings. And this makes Typhon upset. And so, eventually, he attacks Mount Olympus and tries to kill all of the gods. Hera realizes she might have taken this a little too far. So she runs away. Zeus, meanwhile, stays to fight. And the other gods think this is a fantastic plan. They happily let Zeus stay and fight the Snakeception, while they also flee and turn into animals and hide. They hope Typhon will be happy once he kills Zeus, and then he will go away. Somehow, though, Zeus wins the fight. There are a few different accounts of the story, but they all end with Zeus throwing Typhon into Tartarus, the storm-filled pit, and yes, we know he's also the god that made Typhon, and we have no idea how any of this works. And then Zeus picks up Mount Etna and throws it on top of Tartarus to plug up the hole so Typhon can never escape. But Typhon periodically struggles against the weight of the mountain and breathes fire, and that's why things like earthquakes and volcanoes exist. But the important part of the story is that, in Tartarus, Typhon meets the lady snake monster Echidna. Now, she isn't as devoted to the snake theme as Typhon. She's got a human torso and head, and a long snake tail instead of legs. And she only has two wings. But she is depicted with many snakes instead of arms, sometimes, so they obviously had something in common. And when Typhon wasn't struggling to escape Tartarus, he and Echidna were having babies. Baby monsters. In fact, they pretty much sired every monster in Greek mythology. Cerberus? He was one of their kids. The Chimera? Him too. The Hydra? Yep. The Nemean Lion? The Sphinx? The Gorgon? Leighton? Ortheros? All their kids. Along with many others. But what does this have to do with hurricanes? Well... If you're astute, you might notice that the name Typhon sounds a lot like the word Typhoon. So much so that people assume that the name of the tremendous windstorm is, in fact, derived from the name of the fire-breathing infinity snake who fathered all the monsters in the world. And you can probably see the connection, because snakes and, uh, storms, uh, Typhon was a god and... Okay, there is no connection. 
And that's because the word typhoon probably didn't come from the Greek at all, despite the similarity, and despite what some online etymology sites will tell you. But to figure out the real origin of the word, we need to understand how typhoons, hurricanes, and cyclones are all related. You probably know, vaguely at least, that hurricanes, cyclones, and typhoons are all basically just big freaking storms. High winds, heavy rain, you know the deal. And that's not a bad start, but you might have wondered what the difference is between a hurricane, a cyclone, and a typhoon. Well, the truth is, there actually isn't any difference. But to explain why these storms have different names, we do have to explain the difference between a cyclone and a cyclone. Yeah, seriously. Meteorologists have three different names for the same thing, but for two different things, they just use the same name twice. We promise we'll clear all of this up, but we should probably start by explaining what a storm actually is. There's two things you have to understand when it comes to storms, and they have to do with the way air moves around the world. Although you might think of the air as a single thing that envelops the world, it isn't quite that simple. In some places, the air is hotter. In others, the air is cooler. So there are differentials in air temperature. But as air heats up, it spreads out and gets thinner, less dense, and lighter. When air cools off, it gets more densely packed and thicker and heavier. So there are differentials in air pressure, too. And those differentials create weather. Well, actually, they facilitate weather. First, if you have a high-pressure system, where the air is dense and closely packed, the air flows outward along the ground. If you have a low-pressure system, where the air is light and thinly packed, the air flows inward along the ground. So air tends to move from places of high pressure to low pressure. Or it would if the whole dang planet weren't spinning. See, air would love to move in a straight line from a high-pressure spot to a low-pressure spot. But as the Earth spins under the moving air, and the pressure systems move with the air, and the Earth drags on the air, the air tends to move along curved lines. So what really happens is that air spirals outward from high-pressure systems, and spirals inward toward low-pressure systems. And those inward spiraling winds around a low-pressure system are called cyclones. The outward spiraling winds around high-pressure systems are called anticyclones. But cyclones are just wind patterns, and as long as the pressure difference between the highs and the lows isn't too great, you get pleasant breezes, or maybe occasional gusts of stronger winds. It's only when the pressure differential gets really intense that all hell breaks loose. So, what causes the pressure differentials? Well, they're usually caused by a particular mass of air. Now, when we say particular mass of air, or just air mass, what you have to understand is that even though all the air is connected, chunks of air tend to act like their own little air blobs flowing along together. So instead of picturing the world as covered in air, you might picture it as crawling with little air oozes with their own temperatures and pressures colliding and moving on their own. Now, imagine you have an air mass that isn't moving particularly fast, and it's sitting over a very hot spot, say, hot ocean. The air near the surface is going to heat up. Hot air spreads out, thins out, and rises. And gradually, the pressure of that air mass gets lower and lower and lower. A cyclone forms as air spirals in. And the heat of the ocean keeps that air pumping upwards, maintaining and increasing the low pressure system. The pressure differential keeps growing and growing, and the air spins faster and faster. 
And now you have a serious storm spiraling around a column of very hot, very low pressure air. Meanwhile, you also have temperature differentials to contend with. Some air masses are warm and some are cold. And when two masses of air with very different temperatures meet, you have what meteorologists call a front. A front is the leading edge of an air mass with a substantially different temperature from the air it's moving through. And you've seen these on weather maps. Those are the red and blue lines marked with triangles or half circles. Warm fronts, red lines marked with half circles, represent the leading edges of blobs of hot air. Cold fronts, blue lines marked with triangles, are the leading edges of cold air blobs. Now, changes in temperature, as you might remember from our episode about hoarfrost, cause changes in how much water the air can hold. So when a front comes through, those sudden changes in temperature often cause rain or snow. That's why rain tends to move in bands that sweep across the country. We realize we're simplifying a lot of things. We're not talking about convection cells or occluded fronts or anything like that. If you're a meteorologist, please forgive us for simplifying. We only have so many words to use here. Because of the way air masses move in spirals from high pressure systems to low pressure systems, these fronts tend to sweep along with the air spiraling into or out of a front. Fronts tend to be anchored at high and low pressure systems. And that means they tend to sweep around cyclones like the hands of a clock. And they can bring lots of precipitation. In what we have just described, a very low pressure system caused by a slow moving mass of air getting heated by a warm ocean until it is surrounded by a spiral of high winds and a front sweeping around it causing huge amounts of rain. That is what we as children feared would come sweeping up the eastern coast of the United States and wipe us out. That's a hurricane. They form in the Atlantic Ocean, near the equator, where the ocean is hot, and they feed off that energy until the air mass ends up over cooler waters or over land. Once the hurricane does that, it gradually dissipates because there's no hot water to keep heating the air at its center. So, a cyclone is any spiraling mass of air around a low-pressure system. And a hurricane is a cyclone that has become so powerful that its winds move in excess of about 74 miles per hour. So what's a typhoon? And what's a cyclone? The other kind of cyclone. And what's a tropical cyclone? Which is also different. Well, first, a tropical cyclone is just a cyclone that happens in the tropics. And those have the potential to grow into hurricanes. As long as they originate in the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean near the coast of North, Central, or South America. Because the thing that makes a hurricane unique is that it forms near the Americas, especially in the Atlantic Ocean. A typhoon is just a hurricane that forms out in the Pacific nearer to Asia. And if the hurricane or typhoon forms in the Indian Ocean or in the Western Pacific in the Southern Hemisphere, it's called a cyclone. But that's a different cyclone from the other cyclone. So, why are there three different names for these things? Well, it's because the cultures that named them didn't speak the same languages. The word hurricane seems to derive from either the Spanish word huracan or from the Mayan word huracan, both of which are derived from the names of storm gods. Meanwhile, typhoons aren't named after typhoon at all. They are an Asian phenomenon and they were named by the Japanese or Chinese or Indians. Particularly, the word may be derived from the Chinese word Taifung, 
which means great wind, or the Hindi word tufan, which means big storm. And in Japan, there is a correlation between the word typhoon and the god Fujin. And Fujin, the wind god, often paired up with Raijin, the lightning god. And the two of them were responsible for the weather. Now, Japan is an island nation, and like many places, relied on agriculture to keep its people fed. So weather played an important role in Japanese history and culture. On the one hand, storms feed the plants and make agriculture possible. On the other hand, fierce storms destroy fishing boats and coastal sediments and flood fields and cause fires. So ancient Japan had a love-hate relationship with Fujin and Raijin. And that led to a lot of interesting myths, legends, and superstitions. Fujin is a wild-haired god with four fingers on each hand, representing the four directions that wind can blow. And he carries a big bag filled with wind. Raijin is the feared god of thunder and lightning. He has three fingers on each hand, representing the past, present, and future. And he carries a multitude of drums. He's generally viewed as a moody, mercurial god. On the one hand, it was believed that his lightning instilled life into the soil so rice and other plants would grow. On the other hand, his lightning also set fire to things, and he had a tendency to eat children. Seriously. Raijin loved to devour human children. And for some reason, he thought the belly button was just the tastiest part of the child you could eat. And so, children were taught to cover their bellies if they heard thunder, lest the storm god eat them. But we digress. The point is, Raijin and Fujin were seen as both destroyers and benefactors by different communities at different times. And when they got together and got a rip-roaring typhoon going, well, they were pretty much universally terrifying. Until they saved all of Japan from Kublai Khan. By going kamikaze on his fleet. In 1260 CE, Kublai Khan, the grandson of Genghis Khan, came to rule over the Mongol Empire. By this time, the Mongol Empire was pretty big. It ruled over northern China, Persia, Central Asia, Russia, and even parts of the Middle East. And it was still growing. And it had its sights set on southern China. But the Mongols just couldn't get a foothold there. But what Kublai Khan did do was encircle and isolate southern China. Basically, he wanted to starve southern China into submission. To that end, he conquered the Korean Peninsula. But the isolation of southern China wouldn't be complete until it could no longer trade with Japan. In 1268, Kublai Khan sent an ultimatum to Japan. Surrender and pay tribute to the Mongol Empire, or else be conquered. And the ultimatum might have worked if the political power structure in Japan wasn't such a mess. The imperial court in Kyoto was set to surrender to the Mongols. They were terrified. But the emperor and his court had no real power in Japan at that time. Japan was basically under the military rule of the Kamakura shogunate. And the head of the shogunate refused to budge. Hojo Tokimune, the shogun, had a number of trade deals with southern China and relied on the Zen monks of southern China for spiritual counsel. And so he refused to submit. In 1274, the Mongols made good on their threat. An armada of 900 ships carrying 40,000 Mongol warriors sailed from Korea and landed on the islands of Tsushima and Iki off the coast of mainland Japan, conquered them, and then landed at Hikaya Bay in Japan proper. There they engaged the Japanese forces on land, and with their cavalry, advanced tactics, and explosives, 
the Mongols decimated the Japanese soldiers, routing them. After the initial battle, the Mongols retreated to their ships to pass the night and plan their next offensive. And then, suddenly, a massive typhoon came sweeping into the bay. Hundreds of ships were destroyed, and 15,000 Mongol soldiers were killed. The Mongols were forced to retreat. And by the time Kublai Khan assembled another invasion of Japan two years later, the Japanese were able to fortify their defenses and hold out. Several other invasions would follow, and they would eventually fail as well. But the resulting effect on Japanese culture was important. First, the Japanese military had to really step up its game. They changed their tactics and even their weapon designs to more effectively fight against the Mongol army. Second, because it was the first time in history that Japan faced invasion from outside, it was the first time that the samurai and shogunates were fighting together to defend their land, rather than fighting each other for control of the land. And that had a lasting impact on their national character. Meanwhile, the storm that sunk the Mongol fleet earned the name Kamikaze, which means divine wind. After all, the Japanese thought their gods had literally sent the storm to save Japan in its most desperate moment. Which is why, in 1944, when the American fleet reached Leyte Island in the Philippines during World War II, and the military leaders of Japan felt there was no hope of keeping American troops from taking Japan, they called upon volunteer pilots to deliberately fly their planes directly into American ships in a series of suicide attacks. The attacks were dubbed kamikaze attacks. They hearkened back to that provincial storm that sunk a foreign fleet and protected Japan, and also the Bushido Code of the Samurai to accept death before defeat or dishonor. In that first attack, 5,000 Japanese pilots died to destroy 34 American ships and to kill 100 American sailors. The attacks would eventually kill thousands of American and British sailors and over 50 warships. But despite their effectiveness and the heavy cost, they did not succeed in keeping foreign boots from Japanese shores. Less than a year later, the Japanese island of Okinawa was occupied by Allied forces. And a month after that, well, we all know how this story ends. Not with divine wind from the sky, but on holy fire. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>